Hello, I'm Eddie Merckx. Welcome to the VeloCast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the VeloCast analysis of the 2016 Tour de France. ESO, in their infinite wisdom, decided to eschew the traditional prologue stage for a 188km affair that was designed as a commemoration to the D-Day landings, a temptation for crosswinds to cause havoc in the peloton, and for the sprinters to duke it out at the end. And that's largely what we got as Mark Cavendish cunningly came from behind world champion Petr Sagan to not only take the stage, but staggeringly take the first yellow jersey of his entire career. I'm on record many times as saying I think he's the greatest sprinter of the sport's ever seen. You know, what's this, his 27th Tour win, um, Tour stage win. And I at first, I had that moment where, you know, you're doing the prep for a show and you look down your stats and you look down your notes and you think, can it be right that he's not had a yellow jersey before now? And I had to do a Killian and actually dig deep into the background. And sure enough, you know, it, it was entirely possible until not very long ago that the greatest sprinter the sport has ever seen could have finished his career, a career which was hugely successful in the Tour de France, without once wearing the Maillot Jaune. And that would have been unthinkable. But, you know... I was... I was absolutely shocked when, when I learned of this. And it's one of those things that that can't be right. It was like your mum sitting you down and saying, well, you know that guy that you call dad? Well, you think, whoa, 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 that can't be true. What's going on here? So astonishing that this is Mark's first uh, yellow jersey of his entire career. And what a post-race interview that was, even before we get to the sprint and the rest of the stage itself. His comments afterwards, I thought, were just superb. Yeah, I mean, you and I both many, many times over the God, seven years we've been doing this now for, for the Tour de France um, have have on many occasions criticised Mark Cavendish, you know, for for giving the finger to people, you know, for, for all sorts of weird, inappropriate comments as the, you know, the passion that a sprinter has to have spills out in the adrenaline rush after a race finishes. But today, measured, absolutely Brilliant, brilliant performance in the post-race interview. Very, very classy. Highlighted the work that the team sponsor does to promote cycling in Africa. And then moved on to, to honour the fallen of, of World War Two at Utah Beach and, and mentioned, you know, the, all of the fallen who have, have given their lives for, you know, for our freedom. And then afterwards, when I was just speaking to Ashley before we recorded this, Ashley was saying they were down at the, the memorial actually on Utah Beach, all of the jersey winners, and were paying, you know, a, a thoughtful and, and contemplative tribute there. So class act after the race. And that's even before we start talking about what was a fantastic sprint. Yeah, I, I tweeted a, a photo of that, which uh, one of our listeners, Dave Everson Hurst, had uh, managed to to grab from that that little ceremony. I, I agree with you; it was a, a fitting tribute. I think it's much more in the style of the kind of thing I was hoping to see uh, from from ESO and the, and the Tour de France than than yesterday. Or I beg your pardon, the team presentation arriving in, in troop carriers mm. and that that kind of thing. So it's so a well done ESO and indeed the, the riders involved for that. But to Mark Cavendish's win, superbly well taken. And I, I just want to highlight before we really get into to the meat of it, uh, a tweet by Brian Smith, who of course was until very, very recently involved with Team, uh, team Dimension Data. He tweeted, yee-haw, that's what uh, he that's was Because that's what we say in Scotland. We do, yee-haw. You get nothing uh, but yee when you go out and you're killed on a Saturday night. <laughs> 
more, more of the yuch, to be honest. Anyway, that's what he was signed for, planned in South Africa and delivered in France. Yellow, brilliant. Yeah, and I'm, 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 I was absolutely made up. I had a, I almost had a tear in my eye, genuinely. I was so pleased for him. But, you know, you looked at it and it wasn't accidental. You know, we've, we've seen many times sprinters be dominant when they've had, you know, folk who aren't quite in form or, you know, the, the best sprinters haven't turned up. But here we are in the biggest race of the year, the biggest race in the world. The best guys are there, you know, m- minus the stupid idiot that is Nasser Bahani. And the best guys are in form. Their teams are performing well. We saw a chaotic lead in, which we can have a chat about. But the big guys were all there. Marcel Kittle, there. Andre Greipel there and Cavendish won fair and square he was moving away from Kittle towards the end and had been so so clever in the sprint at first as with everybody else he clearly thought that Marcel Kittle was the favourite and locked onto his wheel you know tried to get his wheel so he could then sprint past him and I think at one point he thought Actually, Kittle's not fast enough. I'm moving over to Petr Sagan, who I'm definitely going to talk about before the end of this show. Super impressive performance from the world champion. And then came past Sagan in a sprint that, as ever, looked really, really close, you know, from the front with the foreshortening that that head-on camera gives you. Once we saw the overhead, we saw a Mark Cavendish who was as impressive as he's ever been. Absolutely superb performance of clever thinking sprinting as well as just raw power. And you've hit the nail absolutely on the head there, I think, by saying the word clever, because that's what I thought that that sprint was. And I think he, more than anyone else, realised that with a tailwind, as was clearly the case in the run into the finish today, there's no way that that teams can properly make a difference in in a lead-out train. Yeah, because you're closer to terminal velocity anyway. Everybody is because of the tailwind. Exactly that. And I think Cav made more use of that than, than anyone else did. Like, like you say, he, he was locked onto Marcel Kittel and then saw that Sagan was, was the, the wheel to follow. And basically he used firstly Kittel, then Sagan to launch himself out on, on the right hand side and, and use the slipstream that they both had given plus that, that tailwind that I've just mentioned to fire a, a, a brilliant wind. Watch, which, as as you put it, John, had cleverness just written all over it. I mean, the only slight caveat I'd say, and oh, see what I did there, and it wasn't even on purpose. Um, <laughs> Kittle, for me, a couple of times looked it down, so I'm not sure if he'd selected the wrong gear. But that was his choice. You know, that's all part of the game. You have to be on top of your equipment and actually, you know, be prepared just to give everything for the line. But even if, you know, there was a slip of the gears... Cav was so far in front at the end that I don't think it would have made a jot of difference. You know, this this was a man absolutely at his best. And looking to me like a slightly different Cav, not, I mean, fat is entirely the wrong word because, you know, he's a, he's a lean, absolutely fit cyclist at the Tour de France. But he's changed shape a wee bit with the track training that he's doing with, you know, with Team GB for the Olympics. He looked far more... You know, muscular and stocky to me than he usually does, while still, you know, having having the condition to ride the biggest race in the world. 
Well, I think you you mentioned uh, Marcel Kittel and, and potential for there being a problem with his bike. I thought it was Andre Greipel who was possibly uh, caught with with some gear problems in, in the run-in today. Well, he was all over the place, wasn't he? I mean, his team, God bless them, did a lot of work for him. But he looked to me, I, I lost count of the number of times in my notes I put Greipel slightly out of position. Um, because the finish, although you know we got an expected result at the end, because of the nerves in the first stage of the Tour de France, it was absolutely chaotic in the last 5k. You know, we had Team Katusha, who were working for Alexander Kristoff, uh, were, were often to the fore, you know, easy to spot with that big K on their back. Uh, we saw Etix Quickstep, who were working for, you know, the, a Marcel Kittel that they, like everybody else, expected to win. Um, Dimension Data were at the front and then dropped back and then were back at the front again and all sorts of stuff. So I don't know if it was equipment for, for Andre Greipel or just the fact that he didn't have... Do you remember at the Giro, that stagey one, it was absolutely brilliant tactically. For me, he looked a bit out of sorts today. So, you know, his team did the work. I think Andre will develop. But think of the number of times in this race we've said, oh, you know, it takes a wee while for Mark Cavendish to prepare. It takes a wee while for him to get into his winning streak. Here, he's hit the ground running. And the guys who usually are so dominant in the first couple of you know stages, your kittles and your grapples, I've got some catching up to do. And you know he's not going to hold on to yellow tomorrow. But if he's he's in this kind of form and with the confidence now behind him, we could see him break thirty for career stage wins in the tour just this year. Mm, I mean, I, I think just. You know, encapsulating all that, if you were to put it probably far too simply, it's maybe right to say that Lotto placed Greipel too far Mm -hmm. behind and Ethics maybe put Kittle at the front too early. Mm And Cavendish just capitalised on, on, on both of them. Um, getting to the, the, the man who was kind of in the middle of all that, Peter Sagan, because I know you want to talk about him. Woof, woof. Um, I, I, I th- <laughs> looking very svelte, I thought, today. Oh, looking lean. I mean, but yeah, that, that moment where, um, you know, he was, he, was it he sadly was getting adjusted during the mm-hmm, neutral mm-hmm. start? Um, you posted a picture of him and he's looking very lean around the middle. Um, and f- to be in that kind of condition, you know, not a sign of a hairy leg on him, uh, and still be so, so competitive in a sprint amongst, let's remind ourselves, absolutely the best sprinters in the world. If you're going for the green jersey and you're not Peter Sagan, I'd start looking for another objective now. It's you know, The only thing that's going to take Sagan out is his own mistake or a crash because he looks absolutely majestic. And to see a world champion to the fore this early in the Tour de France, it's like, oh, my Christmas has come at once. You know, We've seen so many disappointing world champions over the years. Sagan has, has given some real honour to the Arkansas Seal. Great performance from him, for him today. I mean, tomorrow he's my hot favourite. We'll talk about that when we preview tomorrow's stage. But for Green, I don't care what they do to change it to make it a bit harder for him. You know, he's he's the complete rider. He's the complete rider, and we saw that today. And I've been increasingly coming to the conclusion, and I will need to to look back or or, or have either yourself or Killian shoot me down in this. But I'm I'm increasingly, as I say, coming to the conclusion that Peter Sagan may be the best world champion the sport has ever seen. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd probably go for a Merckx or somebody. Um, but no, I just mean in terms of the performances while in the World Championship jersey. I don't mean as a as an overall rider throughout their career. Yeah. I mean, the time spent in the World Champions jersey this season, I think he's been, you know, by far the most impressive. But, you know, as I said 
to to caveat myself that that may be proven false by by what either yourself or, or Kelly certainly would, in the modern era. Yeah, facts. in the modern yeah. era, I've got no argument with that whatsoever. I mean, I I would put in. Uh, maybe an Eno or a Merckx, uh, you know, because remember Bernardino winning Paris-Roubaix in the, in the jersey. But, you know, you're looking at the absolute rarefied greats of the greats of the sport to be better. You know, because... I, I, did you see the interview with Tom Boonen where he was talking about Sagan series? Really impressive, but he's just a sprinter who can do some other stuff. I think Tom was being uh, slightly unfair. Um, Peter Sagan is... He's, he's my idea, the, the ideal cyclist. You know, he is very much your Sean Kelly, your Bernardino. And I think we're going to see those rainbow stripes at the front many, many times during this Tour de France. And the only time he'll take them off is to put the green jersey on. Now, a couple of things marred today's stage. One of them very, very serious potentially for, for the overall race. Oh, Another dinner. just in terms of the, the sprint finish. And that was a, a crash which took out several riders in the run-in to, to the finish line today. Um, and I have to say, it, it looked again like it was caused by barriers with feet. And you think... It's 2016, guys. Come on. Why is ASO not doing anything about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Andre Greipel was the first I saw tweet about it from, you know, within the peloton. Um, the the American Cyclist Association had, or Professional Cyclist Association, tweeted that there should be a, just with the three kilometre, you know, time loss rule, um, there should be a, a mandatory lack of feet on barriers in the last three kilometres of a race. ASO and you know that massive organisation are already hoofing about God knows how many trucks worth of stuff, putting another truck with modern you know footless barriers for the finale because these guys are racing at breakneck speed, going for the smallest gaps. They don't need you know those those absolute. I mean, if you were going to design a booby trap for a cyclist, it would be the feet sticking out of these barriers. They just shouldn't be there anymore, and you know. Greipel was also saying that maybe the crowds are a bit close. I don't know about that. You know, we've moved away from when you used to have the, the big cardboard green hands that, uh, was it Tor Hushoff? They put a big cut in his arm one day. But, mm. you know, the barriers, it's it's an avoidable danger. It's an avoidable danger. And it, yeah, and these finishes, they're dangerous enough without adding stuff that you could do something about. So, you know, let, let's it's too late for this tour, I think, because everything's in place. But let's move in forward, make it mandatory that they have no place in a sprint finish. And Sam Bennett was one of the riders involved in that crash and actually he had been my outside bet for, for today. I mean, everybody was, co of course, looking to Cavendish and, and Greipel, Kittle, etc, etc. But I was looking to see how, how Sam might do on, on today's stage. So real upset for him. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, we, you and I both talk to, to various Irish folk on a regular basis and you kind of get sick of them telling you how good Sam Bennett is because <laughs> the drop of a hat, they'll go, oh, Sam Bennett, he's good. Um, this year, he's been really, really strong and, you know, he's had results that make you think he could be in the mix in stages like today. Um, you know, and there are a few stages moving forward if he's not too badly hurt. So, yeah, I mean, it, it it, it shouldn't come down. Michael Morkov's going off to hospital, I think. Um, we expect crashes at this point in the tour, but if they're caused by things like inappropriate barriers, then if I was a rider and you know I was going out of the race, the biggest race of the year, my biggest objective of the year, because some punters put a 1980s barrier on the road, I'd be really, really angry. 
Now, of course, to the big crash of today, it involved Alberto Contador and it looked really bad and hopefully he'll be okay. We saw him get up very quickly, uh, grab a teammate's bike before changing to his spare bike from from the team car. But as soon as he was back on the bike, the the damage certainly to his base layer and jersey and indeed his shoulder was plain for everyone to see. And uh, he went to to the the doctor's car to get some some treatment for that. Of course, as soon as one of the GC guys goes down, we worry instantly for what this means for the rest of the tour. Yeah, and we've had too many tours spoiled by guys crashing out. You know, we've got such a toothsome lineup in this, you know, in this race. Some of the best riders of, of all time in, in Grand Tours lining up against each other. And to see Contador go down after that roundabout, you know, where they came round the roundabout at speed and then there was the road divider, as, as there often is as you leave a roundabout. Um, I'm not sure who it was. I thought it was maybe Brent, Brent Buchwalter, but you were saying it might have been Marcus Burkhart who went down. Um, well, that's certainly what uh, BMC's own Twitter account was saying, because everybody thought it was Brent Buchwalter. And, and again, just going back to stuff we'd said before we started recording... You were potentially saying that, that Contador should be more aware of, of road furniture, but I, I kind of got the impression from looking at it again that if it was Marcus Burkhart that he, he just basically had no place to go Aye. but straight into Contador. Uh, so it was hardly Alberto Contador's fault there. Not that it was, you know, greatly the fault of Mar- Marcus Burkhart either. No, but I, I, I mean, I was a wee bit surprised that Alberto found himself at that point, but it's a fluid situation. Given how hard he went down and given the fact that it wasn't just a straight slide across the road, you know, there was the, the height difference involved with the you know, the central reservation curbs. It looks it looks like he's got off reasonably easily. I mean he's gonna he's gonna be sticking to the sheets in his bed tonight. Um what I'm not even gonna say what just popped into my head there. I'll just move swiftly along to say, you know, his scabs will be weeping. Um Hopefully he hasn't done any internal damage to that shoulder. Remember, he separated it, um, so he's got a long history of having trouble with his shoulder. His hip looked really sore. Um, his, his lower limbs clearly took a knock because he had to change his shoe um, on the bike. Um, but, you know, let's hope it's a couple of nippy days and, you know, the fact that this tour is backloaded might actually work in his favour because... Think about why you and I love watching Alberto ride a bike. It's because he dances up the hills, and you know, in the manner of some of the greats that we we know from uh, you know yesteryear. And try and think about doing that with a damaged shoulder. You know, if if he's got deeper damage to the shoulder, it's going to severely compromise him, which will be to the detriment of all our enjoyment of this tour. So hopefully, just scratches, and we can you know get on once we hit the Pyrenees with you know the kind of performance we expect from Alberto. You know, they say that Geraint Thomas is somewhat, or certainly has been somewhat of a crash magnet mm-hmm. in his career. But if you look back at, at Alberto Contador's tour record, he's worryingly attracted to the tarmac as well. Oh, in 20, uh, 2011, uh, crashed in stages five and nine. Mm-hmm. 2013, crashed in stage 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2014, crashed in stage 10, which caused him to, to leave the race. 2015, crashed in stage seven and in 17. And then he's crashed in stage one again again this year. It's something that Alberto Contador seems to do a bit too often. Do you know what? Do you know, do you know in all those kind of um, Roald Dahl and Rudyard Kipling stories, there's always some kind of cursed charm that to get away from the bad luck you have to get somebody else to accept it willingly. 
Yes. I'm pretty sure that Alberto Contador at some point has been lent a paperback or something by Tom Boonan and it's been hollowed out in a, you know, a monkey's paws inside the book or something <laughs> because he does have the, the, the Tom Boonan tarmac magnet. Um, you know, he does. He hits the ground remarkably often and he seems fairly resilient. But I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose any of the big contenders to crashes this year. You know, I want them all to give us a good, fair fight as they move through France in the, the next three weeks. And, uh, you know, to see to see a, a GC contender go down in stage one, it's just, it, it always, my heart was in my mouth watching the shots from the helicopter. Uh, we had a breakaway today and out in it most of the, the, the time was uh, Alex Howes oh, and Jesus. Anthony Delaplace. <laughs> I know why you're saying, oh, Jesus, to Alex Howes. And it's, it has to be that head and glasses combination, which the UCI, before they start tackling doping, mechanical dopings, or any of the other things that the, uh, I beg your pardon, the UCI are fighting about at the minute, they really should be ruling on pock helmets and glasses well i, th- I think we, we we saw a a very good indication of our generational divide today because you put up a picture of uh, i think a, a mushroom from super mario as your as your picture of uh, alex house whereas in my head i've now got the ear, earworm of you know devo are we not men? We are Devo, D-E-V-O, because they performed with really stupid big 80s, you know, Trevor Horn, Buggles glasses, and incredibly stupid bulbous helmets. And you know, it, it's just, I don't know who on earth would buy that stuff on purpose. You know, clearly they're making them wear it to promote the brand. But, you know, the, the Octal, I can I can get my head around, you know. I, I understand the airflow, it's a decent helmet. The glasses... Yeah, they're kind of too big for me. But when you combine it with that POC road aero helmet and the glasses, instantly you're an object to ridicule. I mean, I, I would I would ask for extra money or something in my contract that said I could just sit all day in the middle of the peloton. Um, it has to be said that Jonathan Vauters is the, uh, the manager at... Um, Cannondale Drapax, I was desperately trying not to say anything else there, was, was pictured in a team car today wearing a baseball cap backwards. <sighs> Therefore, I think we we can see the root of the evil, which is making the riders wear such ridiculous helmet and glasses combinations. Tell you, moving back to the cycling though, Howes was on a mission today, you know, such an aggressive ride. Um, you know, he was away with De La Place, and we'd seen an earlier breakaway where um, Paul Voss really cleverly broke away. As Ashley House predicted to me yesterday, actually, when I was talking to him on the phone, he said somebody will go for a clever move for those first cat, fourth cats to to get the you know the polka dot jersey. So we had that early break, and it was a real treat actually to see the early break develop in the television coverage. But then De La Place and House being away, House was just on a mission, you know. So clearly, um, team have just changed uh, and. And, you know, they're motivated to get themselves out in the television, however ridiculous they look. So I think Howe's actually deserves some credit for a strong, strong performance today, regardless of what he had in his heat. Speaking of Ashley House, I think it's time we get his thoughts from today's stage. OK, welcome to this. This is uh, our first meeting with, with Ashley House in our 2016 Tour de France coverage. Ashley, we've just watched you at a finish which looked to me like it was being recorded in the middle of a busy motorway. 
<laughs> uh, well, hello everybody. It's great to be back uh, back with you, John and Scott as well. Actually, before we talk about it today, John, I'm sorry to change the subject. I must just apologise for not being with you uh, on the last day after the last stage of the Giro. Um, things got a little bit hectic, and then, as as you rightly predicted, we did go for a drink. And after about two or three, I suddenly thought, "Oh gosh, I, I haven't been on the Velocast." But that by, by that point, it was too late in several different reasons. Well, I, I just had a picture in my head of you with a bottle of grappa in one hand and a podium girl on your arm and just having a ball. Yeah, well, as I said to you that day, there was no grappa. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, the first day of the Tour is is absolutely insane, Ashley. And, you know, there is no other race like it. I mean, we can talk talk about the Giro, but there is nothing like the chaos and the atmosphere of the Tour. And you must be absolutely hyped up with the prospect of three weeks of this to come. Yeah, yeah, really unusually for me. uh, I am slightly excitable. Uh, But... um, I think I think you're absolutely right. Basically, July just means the Tour de France, doesn't it, if you're a cycling fan. Whatever you think of the race, mm. whatever you think about the other races, whatever your preferences might be, July in the cycling world is just about the Tour de France. And what I missed watching it on TV was the crowds on the, on the roads. And for, somehow I'd sort of forgotten quite how deep they are. Every kilometre of every stage and even you know 50 60 70k out going through those towns there were just so many people uh, on the roads so there are going to be they always say there's there, there's some up to a half of the french population will actually come out and watch by the roadside it's extraordinary and we saw of course today some incident we saw a fantastic cycling story at the end and we saw you know a, a win for mark cavendish who's not necessarily always the most popular guy in the panel amongst the media or even amongst his fellow riders. But goodness me, what a story. And wow, what a fabulous, fabulous performance by Mark. Yeah, and what a class act afterwards, you know, going heavily into the the African cycling story behind the team and also paying tribute to, you know, the, the people who fell in, in the war at Utah Beach. I think we've we've seen him be, you know, almost childish and spoiled in the past because he cares about the sport so much, but a very measured and mature Mark Cavendish. And I find it hard to believe that we were looking at the possibility that the greatest sprinter I think we've ever seen might have finished his career without a yellow jersey. And that's a gap that he's filled now. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, as you said, in the past, Mark has been, you know, many different things. But today, not only has he showed his unbelievable class as a pro cyclist, but he's also showed his class as a man, actually, too. And uh, Juan Antonio and I had a quick word with his wife, uh, Peter, who was there with their kids uh, behind the scenes. And she was, I thought she was a bit nervy just coming into the last 20 20 or so uh, when we spoke to her, and understandably so. And the scenes afterwards, of course, completely different. Um, and I thought Mark dealt with it very, very well. Not only on the road, although he dealt, goodness me, did he deal on the road with it brilliantly. The way, the way that he actually came around and, and was able to to beat the other guys, the bigger names, the favourites, you know, Kittel and Greipel and so on. The way that, I mean, Christoph went mm. really early. Then Sagan was, you know, Sagan went for it as well. But in the end, you thought, you could just see Cav, couldn't you? You thought, by golly, he's going to do it. Jimbo, he's going to do it. And then he did. And that was great. But also off the bike as well, as you said, John, he's shown a lot of class today, a lot of class. And he's actually down right now um, as we record this. He's down on the on Utah Beach being involved in a special ceremony uh, to commemorate what happened in 1944. 
Yeah, nothing but credit for that. We saw you talking to Alberto Contador's brother afterwards. Is there any any further word from from the road about Alberto's condition? No, I, I think it's um, initial. Uh, well, certainly his brother Fran was saying basically we don't really know uh, the extent of the injuries yet. It doesn't look like it's going to be anything like as bad um, as the sort of double dislocation that he said he had. At the Giro last year um, and um, mm-hmm. uh, and it looks like it's going to be fine tomorrow and as Juan Antonio said really it's a question of just getting out tomorrow morning and starting all over again um, certainly wasn't I mean remember in 2011 he lost a fair bit of time when he crashed on stage one as well just nearly a minute and a half I think it was mm-hmm. But it's nothing yeah. as serious as that. I mean, it, we're, we're only at stage one. We haven't got any signs of fatigue or anything. Um, looking top forward towards tomorrow, I think we've got to say Peter Sagan looks like he's in a very, very strong position for that final play. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? It's it's one of those it's one of those where uh, where the preview shows have talked about it being a really early stage that might even affect the GC. I don't know about that personally. I'm not sure. Um, mm-hmm. It's certainly not going to be um, not going to be a stage, in my opinion, where the GC guys really try to make up time this early. Of course, it's possible with the crosswinds. There, there were some crosswinds today. There are going to be more tomorrow. The weather's going to be much, much worse tomorrow, uh, by all accounts. It, it could be that people that somebody loses time. We hope not. Um, in terms of the stage, when, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, Sagan looks great. He looks on great form. Uh, he's not the most explosive, fastest sprinter in the world, but he wasn't far off today. Uh, and, you know, and the best sprinters in the world are here. I just I just wonder whether, yeah, somebody like him, uh, maybe even Michael Matthews, Simon Gerrand is here too. But then, you know, there are the guys who might go off on a big, big breakaway. Would it be let go? Who knows? And then, of course, there are the guys, uh, you know, who really specialise in those uphill uh, finishes. It's pretty steep in places that finish tomorrow. Uh, Philippe Gilbert isn't here, of course, but Greg Van Avermaet is here. Uh, John Degenkolb's here. Alexander Kristoff, of course, we saw uh, at the front today, too. Yeah, I mean, there's loads of guys. We're just at the start of the journey, actually, so I'll let you get away. I know you've got to go and uh, record with Greg just now. It's going to be a story that develops over the three weeks. And barring telephony disasters, you know, you and I or, or Scott and yourself are going to have a chat every single day. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out to join us on it's the podcast. It's a huge pleasure, as always, John. Hello to Scott. Hello to everyone listening as well. And uh, do join myself and Juan Antonio Fletcher for Tour de France Extra before the live coverage of tomorrow's stage and afterwards. And then Greg Lamond and me for Le Tour by Le Mans later on on Eurosport 2 and then it's repeated I think on Eurosport 1 as well but uh, have a great tour everyone it's brilliant to be with you and thanks so much John for letting me be involved again and be sure to tell Greg he's my biggest hero in cycling <laughs> I'll tell him right now he's sitting behind me he's, right, he's literally right here behind me <laughs> <laughs> thanks for your time Ashley talk to you tomorrow mate okay take care take care everyone see ya so just before we do the top tens, John, what, what's your, your overall thoughts of the, the opening of, of this year's Tour de France? Well, I mean, I, I was really apprehensive before the stage. You know, we had the weather forecast uh, for rain and crosswinds, uh, the footage from the finish with Ashley and, and Juan Antonio. We had the, the, you know, the flags whipping sideways across the road. And for me, you add in the nerves of the first day of the Tour de France, um, you know, the, the the parkour that was ahead of them, so near the coast so much of the time, the crosswinds, I was really apprehensive. I thought we were in for some serious crashes. 
and maybe even the kind of racing that saw Nairo Quintana lose, you know, enough time to lose him the entire tour last year. Uh, but instead, what we actually got, other than Contador's crash, was a far more tranquil stage than I expected. You know, that they, they seemed to be relatively reserved about it until the finale, when suddenly, you know, the speech just went through the roof. Um, so, a good start. You know, we got a brilliant one from Cavendish, which is a feel-good for everybody. Um, Nobody seems to have been terribly badly hurt, fingers crossed. I mean, we're recording this immediately after the stage, so, you know, that that's a developing situation. And, you know, the riders have now got that first stage under their belts, so that initial absolute anxiety and, and anxiousness will be gone. So a bit calmer than I thought today, but still really enjoyable. And... To, you know, building up into a fascinating first week. I'm happy and, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm kind of relieved because it started. You know, we've done this and every year I, I kind of get nervous before it because it's, it's such a big race. But we're underway now. Everybody can just sit back, relax a bit and enjoy the racing. I agree with that. I was a bit nervous ahead of the stage today. I was kind of worried that it may not have been as as good as it was predicted to be or we would maybe hope for. But I, I thought that was a genuinely fun, exciting and, and interesting stage. It, it was like opening a birthday present from your gran, expecting to find some socks and discovering that instead she's got you an ounce of crystal meth on a night out in Westeros with Daenerys Targaryen. Mmm, mm, fire and ice. So, the top 10s for today. Uh, Mark Cavendish takes the win ahead of Marcel Kittel and Petr Sagan. Andre Greipel came in in fourth ahead of Edward Towns. In sixth place was Christophe Laporte. In seventh was Brian Cocard. In eighth was Alexander Christophe. And ninth place was Daniel McClay. And rounding out the top 10 was Greg Henderson. ASO have not only forgotten to run a prologue this year, it would seem that they've also forgotten that the first week should be nothing but flat, dull sprinter stages. Stage 2 tomorrow departs from the capital of the Manche region, Saint-Lô, and runs 182 kilometres to Cherbourg. Now, with a Cat 3 climb to the finish, the Glacerie, this is set to be far from dull, or even one for the out-and-out sprinter. I don't think we'll see a sprinter near the front tomorrow. The, the final climb looks hard enough to me that uh, were Philippe Gilbert here, uh, it would be the knee-jerk reaction to cite him as my favourite for the win. Um, it's the kind of stage we're looking at the terrain. Shush, shush, stop, shush, stop, stop talking right now. I'm just going to say Peter Sagan before you do, okay? Ah, damn. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, in that case, I, I know who I'm going for. Uh, I would. I mean, Persigan's the obvious choice. It's the kind of stage where, if it wasn't the second stage of the Tour de France, you might genuinely expect a wee breakaway to get up the road. You know, it's challenging terrain, heavy roads, yada yada. Um, the finish is hard enough to get rid of. Uh, you know, the, the pure sprinters. Um, Peter Sagan is is going to be a real big favourite for the day, but I think we'll see some of the GC guys start to stretch their legs. And if you're going for Peter Sagan, ooh, who am I going to go for? Dan Martin. A very very good shout, but I I I mean I know that you're only saying that because I've I've caused you to by Pe- Peter's going to it. <laughs> but I think that's a very, very good shout. It, it does look like the kind of finish that Dan Martin would would really, really like. If you look at that that last Côte de la Glacerie, it, it it's very much the the kind of finish that, that Dan Martin would like. Mm. But equally so, I just think with 
the world champions jersey on and wanting to to make a point after feeling probably that he missed out slightly today because that was a very very good sprint from from Peter Sagan. I can see him being very up for it tomorrow. The on, the only slight fly in the ointment for that for me is that if I mean it's a, it's it's only three kilometres and it's only a third cat climb, but see if the really big guns decide to start firing, and I'm expecting them to be relatively reserved. But if you have, you know, an Alberto Contador wanting to show that his shoulder's fine, you know, and he's not badly mm. if you have a Chris Froome deciding that he wants to wind up that ridiculously fast cadence of his, you know, if you have a Vincenzo Nibali wanting to show that he's not just here to make up the numbers, or a Fabio Ari wanting to show that he's actually in the kind of form where he can be a credible team leader for Astana, then even Peter Sagan might find it hard to hang on to their coattails. So, you know, if if the big guys decide to go the bets might be off. I'm glad you mentioned Astana there because it just reminded me, a tweet sent out by the, the journalist Mikhail Konda and it was a quote from Alexander Vinokurov who had just told him that Jakob Fuglsang was not allowed to go for stage wins because he was there to do a job for Fabio Aru. So uh, Astana still very much sticking to Fabio Aru being, being the plan, it would seem. Ah, well, he's maybe had diarrhoea the week before the race or something. That usually does him some good. Okay, I shall leave that there. So we're off and running at the 2016 Tour de France, a stage that saw drama for Roberto Contador and elation for Mark Cavendish. Join us again tomorrow for what will be an exciting finale in another edition of The Velocast. Velocast.